Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Imagine if in this country, the government decided to round up members of a specific religious or ethnic minority in order to get their heads in the right place and detain them. What song would you make these detained people sing to really turn their heads around, to get their heads right? How about this song? A Reuters reporter recently got a guided tour of one of the places where they're holding Uyghurs in China and was treated to a classroom of Uyghurs singing this song in English. We are going to talk about the detention of the Uyghurs now with Drew Gladney. He's a professor of anthropology at Pomona College in California, and he's the author of Muslim Chinese Ethnic Nationalism in the People's Republic. You know, Drew, I I think one of the things about this story about the Uyghurs, uh, the detention of a million people, is it sounds so unbelievable. And the idea that you could re-educate a million people and teach them ridiculous songs in English and things, it just seems so far-fetched and so strange to people. Well, I think the education part might be understandable in the sense that the Chinese government is always... And Chinese society has always believed in education through a kind of Confucian understanding that would lift everyone up and and generally in service of the state to help them love the motherland. What's really disturbing about this whole enterprise is it's done with people without their consent, and many of them are removed off the street and detained without any prior knowledge, any court procedures, and kept for indefinite periods of time, often their family have no idea where they are. Now, the idea of uh, some of the camps seems to be uh, the tour the, the Reuters people got. It was seems very innocuous. The people seem well cared for. It doesn't seem awful. But then there's other uh, detention camps, and they seem worse. There was a report in The Guardian about a detention camp that's growing and people say that, you you know, it's, it's, it's bad um, and it's getting worse. How do you reconcile the kind of reporting that we're seeing about this? Well, I think it's important that this is the first visit of Western reporters and diplomats to these camps that China has opened up, a few of them. China is very good at uh, scripting situations, getting people to make public statements and often confessions that often bear little uh, resemblance to the what's really going on and the truth. What it does suggest, though, that is China has finally been feeling pressure about the situation that's been going on for over a year. Senator Marco Rubio has spoken out about this, mainly because the fear is that it's in, involving a, a severe clampdown on religious freedom throughout China, not just for Muslims, but for Christians Buddhists and other groups, but it's targeted at Muslims and until recently, mostly Uyghur, who are the largest group in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region of Northwest China, China's largest province. About 10 or 11 million Uyghurs and about one million of them, we believe, are in these camps. But now it's spread to the Cossacks and some of the Hui, who are the Chinese-speaking Muslims, which suggests that it's widening. It's also widening um, throughout the country. How do we take this? Is the reason for this just the government's 
extreme nationalism right now and it's it's a part of a symptom of a larger problem or is this a specific campaign to rub out ethnicity in China? Well, it's almost like a yes we can slogan and through the extreme in the sense that Xi Jinping is flexing his muscles. He knows nobody's going to stand up to him. There's been no real serious responses from mainly Muslim Middle Eastern governments. Nothing really formal from the Central Asian government, mainly because of this enormous Belt and Road Initiative, which has already spent $1 trillion in investments in these regions adjacent to China. People don't want to lose that kind of trade patronage. But it does suggest that there's a growing backlash and that China cannot do willy-nilly what it wants outside of its own country, but certainly is going to do it inside its own country. And underneath all of this, I think, is a, a growing and palpable sense of fear about Islamic radicalism and homegrown terrorists returning to China after the end of the war in Syria, where there were upwards of two to 3,000 Uyghurs who fought there and were trained, some of them by ISIS, some of them by some of the other groups, who they fear might be returning to China. That also parallels a growing conservatism in Islam throughout the world until just recently patronized by Saudi dollars and the Wahhabi school of Islam, which was spreading pretty strongly in China. Uh, And when I went back recently, just this last fall, uh, I didn't get to Xinjiang, I've been there many years, but in other Muslim areas of China, you see a growing number of women wearing veils, the black style, uh, Middle Eastern style hijab. And also the kind of Arabization of Chinese Muslim mosques, which in the past had a more Chinese architectural style with sloping roofs and eaves, now have been growing with large Muslim Middle Eastern style domes. So the government has reverse course and wants to put a full stop to that kind of behavior. Well, why does the government then go out and detain, you know, mass amounts of people who might not be guilty of this behavior. They they rounded up intellectuals, people who have been writing about Uyghur culture for 30 years and publications in China got rounded up and taken away. Uh, They're doing this like uh, with a blunt instrument. If if that's their goal to to, to, to change uh, um, certain people's religious practices, it's... Why are they going about it so weirdly? Well, I think the government wants to completely reorient the way Uyghurs uh, and other uh, religious practitioners, not just Muslims, but also Christians, think about the role of of religion and the state. And they want to make it clear that religion is under the control of the state. There are only five official religions that are allowed to be practice legally in China. They have a freedom of religion policy, but in this case, they um, are really trying to get inside the heads of Uyghurs, and intellectuals are very key to this process uh, and change the way they're thinking, uh, not unlike conversion therapy in the West. They're trying to completely reorient people. And like conversion therapy, I believe personally as a scholar, uh, it'll have very counterproductive uh, results. I think in some cases, people will become even more adamantly um, critical of the state 
and of Chinese practices. It does seem like China is going to release these people and, you know, and deem certain percentages of them ready to go back into society. And they say their numbers are going to go down in these camps. And that's what you're left with, right? I mean, you're you're left with these people who have been indoctrinated in this way, uh, you know, out, out to do what they want after this. And uh, uh, the results might not be really good. Well, that's what our concern is, that it will lead to some of the exact some things they're deathly afraid of, such as further terrorism. In the, in the late uh, 2000s, 15, 16, 17, there was a dramatic increase in the number of terrorist incidents, not just in Xinjiang, but in southern China, starting in 2008 and nine, with a major riot that took place, maybe the largest China's ever seen. Um, an ethnic riot. So the government since then has been very, very worried about the direction of the region. And as I mentioned, it's a key crossroads for the Grand Belt and Road Initiative. So if they can't stamp it out there, they're afraid that the whole initiative could be in peril. And also coupled with this is this rising Islamophobia that I mentioned. But I think in the long run, it really could be counterproductive. People will say what they're supposed to say, um, China has a word for this, people who are two-faced. Uh, one face, they support the government. The other face, they do other things. Um, but in some ways, they're forcing many Uyghurs uh, around the world, not just in China, to be completely against what everything the government's been trying to do in terms of reforming and giving economic progress and development and support the government's project in the area. It's galvanized the international Uyghur population like never before. Um, They're organizing like never before. It's forcing them to forget a lot of their differences on how to strategize um, about their region. In the past, you rarely heard comments from these Uyghurs abroad with whom I've worked quite extensively uh, in Australia, especially in Europe, Central Asia, Canada, and the United States. And generally, you, you heard them not uh, kind of following the Dalai Lama's line and not advocating for independence and certainly not violence and never supporting radical Islam or jihad. Now we're getting more of that. I'm talking with Drew Gladney. He's professor of anthropology at Pomona College in Claremont, California. He's the author of Muslim Chinese, Ethnic Nationalism in the People's Republic. And we're talking about Uyghurs and the million or so Uyghurs that have been detained for re-education by the Chinese government. Uh, you know, the whole project of the Road and Belt Initiative that um, you were mentioning there that the Chinese are doing, it would seem to be that like if you're going to introduce a project like that, you've got to expect that you're going to have more interaction with this entire region and that different – um, styles and religious styles are going to be circulating. You cannot um, you cannot keep culture out if you're trading with other cultures. Is this a, a kind of strategic short-sightedness on the Chinese? You, you want to have your trade but um, not take in any culture. Well, not just that. They want to showcase the culture and they want to present the local populations as singing and dancing and some and being very patriotic in this kind of process. Uh, 
The problem now, however, is uh, they've recognized, particularly since the 2009 riots in Urumqi, which involved over 3,000 people uh, being either killed or arrested, that they realize it hasn't worked. For 60 years, they've been trying to turn the native population into this singing and dancing group of puppets, almost, uh, for the state. And they realized that Islam had been growing, conservatism was popular, uh, Uyghurs themselves were becoming more outspoken and critical, particularly Uyghur intellectuals of the government policy. Uh, the region's been flooded with Chinese from out, throughout China who make substantially more money than the local population. And there was a growing resentment about this top-down development policy that enriched those at the top and very, very little trickled down to the Uyghurs for whom the region is named. And they were calling for more voice, more autonomy, uh, to basically follow China's minority policy, much of which came into severe criticism in the aftermath of the 2009 riots. And instead of uh, listening to more um, conciliatory voices suggesting uh, changes in policy, suggesting more involvement with the Uyghurs in a voice in their own affairs and in the development procedures, the government's gone the other way. It's gone to a much more repressive, almost Maoist response to this. And so what we're seeing is what we saw in the 60s and 70s in China's religious reform campaigns that culminated in the Cultural Revolution. And some of the practices that we see now are textbook uh, reproductions of what was done during the Cultural Revolution. Mass arrests, incarcerations, self-criticisms, public humiliations, um, people removed from their posts, uh, a lot of internal struggle and a kind of encouragement of contradiction within the people, which is a Maoist approach. Uh, we had thought China was growing to be a more open society and more development and more globalized. But I think China at some point is at one level, but only if you can be completely absolved of any doubts about the Chinese state and about its policies um, and about whose side you are on some of these uh, disagreements um, about the nature of modernity, the nature of progress, the nature of religion in one's life. The ultimate outcome of this is, you know, I guess it's not just the Uyghurs, it's the Kazakhs now. It's going to be Maybe students studying in the United States, students studying abroad. Uh, there, there's like an implication to this kind of behavior that's very broad. And when you start talking cultural revolution, yeah, things kind of get out of hand there. It's it's not a good thing. Right. And we also know that the cultural revolution essentially led to the downfall of Mao and his supporters and the rise of Deng Xiaoping and the reform and opening Uh, policies of the early 80s and 90s. Now under Xi Jinping, we see, I think, a a shift back towards the, if you want to call it the center, I would call it more the extreme period of the Maoist period of state control, of lack of personal freedoms. One hopes that this may just be a short-term tightening that will put people in line and ease the government's fears about a, a rebellion or separatist tendency in the region or to keep uh, radical Islam from spreading. But many of us who have studied this region for over 30 years 
feel that it could be very counterproductive, particularly among Uyghurs outside of China. There's this extraordinary anger like I've never seen before, uh, more of a willingness to consider more radical solutions like violence, uh, like jihad. Uh, and those are things we had not been hearing in the past. I think China has, is deathly afraid of what could happen. They don't want China to be Paris, for example, or Europe, where these groups are not well you know, under control. Um, and one of the reasons I think the Chinese think they can do this is those Maoist years where people were deathly afraid and everyone suspected everyone else. There was no personal space. There was no room for dissent. Uh, and that f- fear is palpable in China among people, among scholars. Uh, I've been to conferences where people just don't even want to talk about Xinjiang. Or if they do, people I've known for 20 years are very careful about what they say in public. In private, it's a different story. But it is the case that the government has succeeded in making everyone afraid about what could happen, not just to them, but to their family and to their friends. And I think this is the method they've used among Uyghur uh, diaspora abroad, that if, if you get engaged in these movements, if you criticize the Chinese government, your family will be affected, your friends, your colleagues. We've had a large rise in the number of asylum requests among Uyghurs outside of China, and I only expect that to continue. It's exactly what they don't want to happen. They wanted many of these uh, Uyghurs and Chinese students who study abroad to come back to China and contribute to its modernization. Many of them are deathly afraid to do so. Uh, I wanted to ask one more question about what people outside of China can do about this. The Washington Post had an editorial the other day, and they said, well, the Trump administration doesn't seem so interested in this. Congress should appoint uh, someone, a special representative, to begin formulating uh, a report and and start doing things on this. Are, are there things countries can do that would put more pressure on China? Well, it's a delicate balance because on the one hand, China is a sovereign country. There are much more egregious treatments of native populations in other countries of the world, such as Syria and North Africa. And the Chinese point to a treatment of our own minorities, Native American peoples uh, in our own history, which, you know, we can't deny. But on the other hand, the Belt and Road Initiative which I support. I think it's really a chance uh, for China to open up. It's outward-looking. Xi Jinping, in his famous speech at Davos, invited the entire world to participate. It supports globalization. It's critical of populism. Xi Jinping is building roads and bridges, uh, much better than building walls, in my opinion. So we We want to support that. We want to encourage that. The U.S. government has been very reluctant to support this initiative. Uh, There have been some negative outcomes, particularly on the investment side. There are a lot of strings attached. Some responses in Pakistan and in Sri Lanka have been critical. But on the whole, I think this region lacks engagement, lacks investment. The United States has withdrawn, has been uh, moving away from this kind of engagement. Uh, And that gives China an opportunity to fill the vacuum. But it's going to completely unravel if China's own domestic situation receives extraordinary uh, international criticism and attention. People aren't going to want to follow the Chinese model if they discover their own Chinese, their own citizens 
are treated in such a fashion. One would hope that they'll recognize that this is counterproductive and find other ways to involve the Uyghurs, the Kazakhs. It's extraordinary that Kazakhs would want to leave China. About 15, 20 years ago, when Kazakhstan became independent from the former Soviet Union, many Kazakhs who had come from China returned to China and have benefited from China's extraordinary development. And now they want to go back to Kazakhstan. (laughs) (laughs) Very interesting. Well, thanks for joining us and talking about the situation with the Uyghurs in China. Drew Gladney is professor of anthropology at Pomona College in California. He's author of Muslim Chinese Ethnic Nationalism in the People's Republic. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks, Jerome. Coming up, we'll talk with film contributor Milos Stalik, and we'll discuss the new film about Stan and Ali. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our film contributor, Milos Stalik from Facets. It's good to see you, Milos. Hey, Jerome. Great to be here. Well, it had to happen. There's a new film about Stan and Ollie out in the theaters now. It's got two splashy leads, Steve Coogan and John C. Riley in the Ollie role. Um, pretty, it sounds like an interesting casting of this, uh, this perennial classic. They are both pretty terrific. You know, it's kind of a end-of-life story, mostly, for Lauren Hardy. I mean, and the film starts in the 1930s when they're both still making films for Hal Roach Studios, who owns all their films, so they're not doing particularly well financially, which has its biggest impact on Ali, who tends to gamble his money away. There's a a Stan tries to go separate, and so they form their own company that does not work out because Ali refuses to, uh, to, to, to quit. And then we move, flash forward, 20 years later, they are in England, they are on a major theatrical tour through a lot of small towns, slowly working their way theoretically towards London, very poor audiences, everybody thinks, hey, you were great, we thought you were dead. Um, And then their personal life and the, the, the irresolution of their situation when they were working for Hal Roach really comes back to haunt them. All right. It sounds like a nice film. I looked at the trailer. I didn't see it, but it sounds uh, pleasant, and it's kind of getting an art house release, as it were. It's very, you know, it, it's hard to know who this film is for, in a way, because in a way, the Laurel and Hardy audience. I don't know how much traction Laura and Hardy still have. They should have because they were really a major force in comedy and American cinema. But I don't know how, how much of a connection there is. So who is that audience? This is a film that you could certainly take younger people to and in a way have them discover 
early American comedy because because John Riley and Steve Coogan restage a lot of the classic Laurel and Hardy bits and, 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 and pieces, so it would be a nice entrance to it. It's kind of a shaggy dog story in a way, wonderfully acted, very well produced, and and very, very sweet. But, you know, where is the, where, where is the beef? And so uh, it's in a couple of theaters, the Landmark and the AMC release. It's not going to get a wide distribution, as it were. Well, you know, I don't, I, I don't see that personally, and I'm certainly not the guru. But I think in a way it signals a certain different kind of filmmaking and how a film which is destined to have a longer life, as this film I think will – in online platforms, perhaps on TV, in syndication, on, on television, and other formats, how that's affecting the kind of film that we're seeing. And, you know, bless Sony Pictures Classics for releasing it theatrically because every film should have a theatrical release. But on the other hand, there's something else at play because the online platforms have become such a major financial force in cinema that I think that they're beginning to drive the show. And the rest of our time we are going to spend talking about films that are being driven by online platforms, mostly Netflix. And, um, I mean, you say every film should get a theatrical release, but is that day going away? Milos, you and I are dinosaurs in radio as a dinosaur. Online, on demand is everything. These things, podcasts, they're going to kill radio. Uh, it's going to kill cinema. Well, I mean, that's, that's really the fight, and that's the stage that we're in because we're really on the precipice of really ending— Extinction. Extinction of, is of, what it's of called. Of extinction, Jewish. of ending cinema as we know it, uh, going to movies as a social action in which we are together with other people and sh- a shared experience instead of that watching something on a, no matter how good or how big our TV set is, it's still in our living room or basement or someplace else. Or in, it's, not, it's not the same thing as going out and, and having an event. And the absurdity of it really comes into play in, into something like the new upcoming Martin Scorsese movie, which Netflix is producing, which support, called The Irishman, which supposedly costs $200 million. It's not a small piece of change. And which is going to get two weeks theatrical, two-week release in theaters before, of course, it goes to the online platform, to Netflix. So this is a kind of a a, a, a really moment in history in which everything is really changing because filmmakers are going to Netflix, of course, so they can have money to make films. The kinds of films that they that they are able to make is sometimes very different. And certainly how and where those films end up or how they're seen, how they're distinguished, how they're appreciated is something completely different. So um, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the recent Coen Brothers film, when it, it uh, opened in New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, and played in each just four days, and then went to Netflix. So the four days qualifies it for the awards, I guess, is the only thing right. keeping cinema alive. Right. And and there there they go. Well, and the Coen Brothers are a major you know force in American cinema. Yeah. I mean, this is a fun film in part. It's very episodic. It's set in the West. They're really masters of reimagining genres. They've been there before with films like True Grit. Uh, it's got a lot of wonderful actors like Tim Blake Nelson, uh, James Franco, Liam Neeson in all of these episodes. Not all of the episodes are equally successful, but 
when they work, they're a lot of fun. Uh, for example, the first episode, which is Tim Blake Nelson strumming his guitar, riding on his horse. He's a singing cowboy who always, until the very end, gets the best of the other guy with his uh, six-shooter. So it's kind of pokes fun at the Western genre at the same time as appreciating it. And it's a film that people would have liked to have seen in theater because you would laugh at a lot of it. Now, so there, there's a, a little bit of a loss for all the people who have to watch Buster Scruggs and Netflix. One of the films that I saw uh, that made the, um, you know, the circuit with uh, the, the various uh, awards and things, the, 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 the Cannes Film Festival, all that, um, was about a uh, Soviet writer, Sergei Davlatov, who came, came to the United States eventually. But um, that was a film that went right to online streaming. You know, I talked to the sales agent of this film in in uh, uh, in Cannes. She said to me that the reason she sold it to Netflix is because that was the only offer that she had on the table. Because all of the other American distributors said, "Ah, you know, Russian writer, nineteen seventies. Who is going to come and watch it?" Which, of course, leads us to where the audiences for today's films are. And this happens to be a film that's completely buried on Netflix because, of course, in proportion to the money that they spend on acquisition, it was a you know timely drop in the bucket. Well, the algorithm tells you what to watch, and, and whose algorithm says Soviet writer from the <laughs> right, 70s? Right, exactly. And it's one of the best films about writers that really brings you into this era and the culture and the life of these people, like... Um, uh, who were, many of whom were, 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 were dissidents, writers like Yevtushenko, uh, people who ran afoul, and Brodsky, Brodsky especially, who factors as a character in the film, who try to survive in a repressive Soviet regime in which their work was not being published, and at the same time has really the guts to focus on their personal life, the kind of fractured relationships, how this affects their relationship to their partners, to their children, uh, how they constantly struggle to get a, get a writing job that's being approved. It's really uh, an immersion into a certain time and place, and the film is completely lost. All right, and but if people want to look for this, it's called uh, Davlatov, and it's on Netflix. Right, and it's a it's, it's a writer whom I didn't know before seeing this film, and read subsequently. He's in translation, a most wonderful writer. And it, it sounded I read an uh, article in the New Yorker about this, and the director uh, Alexei German is uh, had a father who was a filmmaker in the Soviet Union and suffered the same fate as this writer. Couldn't quite, you know couldn't get what he wanted made and distributed. Right. Alexei German Sr., uh, you know, was a major figure of Soviet cinema. I mean, you know, great individual, very accomplished uh, artist. Um, his last one was called Krishnalov, My Car. Uh, very wry, ironic, perfectionist, beautiful imagery, a major figure of cinema who didn't make enough films because he couldn't get them approved. Um, let's skip ahead to one film that really made um, the festival circuit, uh, was a big hit at Cannes, uh, Happy as Lazaro, goes right to Netflix. Didn't, never saw a theater. Never saw a theater. The it's States. a beautifully made film, really neorealistic, something very original, a film by Alice Rohrwacher, whose previous film was The Wonders, set in a very isolated area of Italy where the sharecroppers who are growing tobacco in an almost feudal situation 
all for this Marquesa who owns the land, that's whom they share crop for. Uh, and the main character, whose name is Lazaro, is this very kind-hearted uh, young man who is bossed around for everyone. So the, the most common line that you see repeated is, Lazaro do this, Lazaro go there, Lazaro get this. And he's very obliging. He's very, 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 very happy. So he's kind of a holy fool. And then the second half of the film shifts into the city when this 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 ruse that they're being held illegally as sharecroppers is discovered. They move to the city and they encounter the modern world. So it's a film that really inter- is, is does something very, very original, very beautiful. It's like it reminds you of the best films of Visconti, like like Terra Trema. And and these characters in the in, in this film are so alive and so beautifully acted that again this would be an incredibly wonderful shared movie experience. But at least millions of more people will see it on streaming devices that will ever go to the theater to see it, and will they, will, they? They will have found an audience, and it's wonderful. Will they? Will they? And audio will stay alive by podcasts, and we won't, we won't need radio stations anymore. It's going to be a great future, Milos. Everything's going to be fine. I think we are going to be also isolated and so fed, stream-fed into exactly the thing that some algorithm discovers for us that we will never get out of our cocoons. We will perpetuate the same kind of narrowness. Uh, that only only reflects our own pre-existing taste that we will never be able to grow. And that's the death of civilization. If you can't grow, let's give up. Let's, you know, have, you, let's blow everything up and say it's all over. Have a nice weekend, Milos. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jerome. Milos Stalik is our film contributor from Facets. Thanks very much for being with us. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport, uh, where we tell you how to have an international good time on the weekend. Stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our escort in this journey is Nari Safavi, global citizen, man about town. Nice to see you, Nari. Uh, good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. Where are we going first? Uh, we are first going to, I guess, uh, Korea, South Korea. There is uh, going to be an interesting uh, opening tonight of a show by a Chicago-based uh, Korean uh, artist uh, called uh, Duke J. Kim, and uh, it's called De-Skinned, and uh, she has a very interesting... That sounds painful. Yeah, exactly, exactly. She has a sort of uncomfortable uh, sort of a, uh, looking show that is uh, going to be at the ZJ Gallery at 300 West uh, Ontario. Uh, we hope that maybe we can bring her over for a conversation, but uh, I like the aesthetics of her show. Snarly looking animals she's painted and uh, she plays with the color scheme and everything. Kind of a little bit like Ed Paschke, taking the familiar and making you uncomfortable with it slightly so. So, I mean, some of it, it looks very, um, the cat portraits look snarly and realistic, but some of it is, is abstract and cool and uh, retains some sort of 
edge, uncomfortable exactly. edge. There is an uncomfortable edge to it. Kind yeah, of like so. getting skinned. Yeah, exactly. And I, 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 these days, I don't know. I'm into the art that uh, that challenging you a little bit and taking you a little bit out of your comfort zone. I think we're at, the, at, an, at an era where we need to be challenged. Speaking of getting out of our comfort zone, our featured piece. Um, what is it, Nari? Well, it's a it's a, it's a play called La Ruta by uh, done by uh, Oscar Gomez, uh, who has been uh, uh, in this show before, and uh, very interesting play about uh, human trafficking and what's going on south of the border, uh, uh, in the uh, south of the Rio Grande, with uh, politics of it and what's happening to women. All female cast, star-studded casts. Uh, I have some problems with the play myself. But, you know, the talent-wise, the place is loaded with talent. So, And uh, with us is Isaac Gomez, the playwright for La Ruta that's running at the Steppenwolf. Great to meet you. Thanks for having Karen me. Karen Rodriguez is an actor in the Steppenwolf Ensemble and in La Ruta. Great to have you, Karen. Thanks for having me. And uh, Elise uh, Dabney is program manager with the Salvation Army and their Stop It Initiative Against Human Trafficking. And January is International Trafficking Month. Today is actually International Human Trafficking Day. And we thought this to be an appropriate thing to talk about at this um, instance. Um, Isaac, how did you come to this work? How did you come to La Ruta? So I'm originally from the border, the place in which the play is set in El Paso, Texas, Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. And, um, you know, growing up as a kid, there would be circumstances, uh, especially for those of us when we would cross um, um, into Juarez and spending time with my family there, instances in which, um, you know, the young women in my family would have to be escorted um, to the grocery store, a company to throw trash, you know, things like that. And at the time as a young person, um, that felt very normalized and part of everyday life. And it wasn't until I was older that um, I had learned about the missing and murdered women of Juarez and was confronted with my own male privilege in that way and that, wow, how could that this have been happening in my hometown? And I have no awareness of it mm-hmm. happening in the first place. So I went back to Juarez as an adult and interviewed women whose daughters are still missing, who um, right drive their buses that take women to the factories and back, um, um, folks who are doing activism work and newspaper journalist outlets and factory workers. And from those testimonies um, and a long development process, which includes guidance since its inception about seven years ago, <laughs> um, have created this play. Nari? Yeah, I wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, I saw the one that you did seven years ago, and I really liked it. Oh, two and a half years ago. Two and a half years ago. Oh, two and, two and a half. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was, uh, two and a half years ago, and I we saw I saw another mm-hmm. one with your performance, yes. also another play. And I've liked about everything, just about everything you have done so far. And after I saw this on the opening night, I was hard-pressed to see what's the improvement. You know, of course, now you have the platform of the Steppenwolf and you have more resources. And my God, the acting is amazing in it. Uh, but what what really improved? Can you tell us a little bit about your, uh, you know, why do you think this version is better than the other ones? Um, I'm not sure I would frame it in that way. Better doesn't feel like the right word in this mm-hmm. context, though, 
you know, the, the, the iterations of La Ruta have evolved exponentially, mm-hmm. and this is its world premiere. Mm-hmm. So this is mm-hmm. the first production of this, this okay. play mm-hmm. ever. Okay. So the companion piece, The Way She Spoke, is a one-woman show mm-hmm. that Karen uh, premiered at the Greenhouse Theater Center in mm-hmm. 2016. So the, those are two different plays. Well, maybe the correct question to mm-hmm. ask is that you had done the other plays. Yes. Why did you think to do La Ruta is necessary at this moment? Well, La Ruta also deals with, like, the women themselves, like the women in Juarez themselves. Um, while the sister piece to this, the way she spoke, is about a young woman who lives here in America, particularly Chicago, and she comes in to read a play. Um, And in the duration of the play, she finds out Mm -hmm. about the murdered and missing women of Juarez. And so I I do think that there's a huge difference in the plays. And I do think it's it's necessary to have La Ruta because it's it's the women themselves telling their story as opposed to somebody experiencing their story. And that's what happens in the way she spoke and the way she spoke talks about the issue at large and how women go through this all over the world. And La Ruta is the women in Juarez. We experience them in their home place, telling their stories and living, not exp- not not experiencing in retrospect, but literally living that those tragedies and that horror in real time. Um, so I do think that both are necessary for different reasons. Right. And, and interestingly, La Ruta actually was written first. Mm-hmm. So this play, this play was written first. Um, the way she spoke had its production before La Ruta did. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so you know, in the industry uh, of theater, you know, theaters will choose plays, you know, in the context <laughs> of, of their season planning. You Politics know? of the yeah. play. <laughs> so, so, you know, so theater it took, world. <laughs> it took La Ruta seven years to get a production yeah. right. where the way she spoke, I wrote less it than a year. and less than a year someone programmed yeah. it. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so that's, it's sort of... And I think it was because people... Uh, the reason Isaac, wrote, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Isaac, but the reason Isaac wrote that piece is because uh, so many people were interested in how mm-hmm. he even got those testimonies. Yeah. Yeah. And so he wrote this this sister piece uh, uh, detailing that yeah. journey into yeah. what is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, if I make it a little personal over here with you, Oscar, yeah, is that, uh, you know, this is a st- subject that you have been dwelling on for a long time. And uh, my appraisal of you is as a very talented person. Don't you think it will be a better use of your talent to move on to a new subject? Are you working on anything else? Oh, uh, yeah. I have seven full-length plays in addition to this. Okay, good. And I have had work developed all over the country in major mm-hmm. regional theaters, not just here in Chicago, but Denver Theater Center for the Performing Arts, South Coast Repertory Theater, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, mm-hmm. Primary good. Stages, Off Broadway in New York. Mm-hmm. Plays that range topics dealing with my mother, a comedy set in a fictional place like Walmart. Mm-hmm. Good. Called Wally World and um, the horror play The Displaced that premiered earlier this year at at, at Haven Theater at the Den okay. this summer. Um, it just so happens that these two companion pieces are what's being profiled in this moment. Okay. Okay. So yes, and also I'm looking forward to those. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking with Isaac Gomez, Karen Rodriguez from uh, La Ruta. Isaac is the uh, playwright. Karen is one of the featured players. And also with us is Elise Dobney. She's program manager for the Salvation Army's Stop It Initiative Against Human Trafficking. And Elise, you've been uh, at some of the talkbacks and discussions uh, after the play? So we actually are scheduled to participate in a talkback on this Sunday. Sunday. Mm -hmm. And 
Tell us something about the Stop It initiative against human trafficking and what you do, because it's pretty impressive work. Yeah, we work with folks who've experienced human trafficking in the United States who currently live in northern Illinois. So adults and minors, foreign national and domestic, male, female, and trans individuals, and people trafficked for sex and or labor. Um, And we do a lot of case management and support in building independence and independence from traffickers as well as independence from our program. So our goal is to really foster choice and self-determination in people's lives who haven't necessarily been offered that Mm. opportunity. And one of the misconceptions about trafficking is that it happens somewhere else. It happens in Ciudad Juarez, but it does not happen here, but it happens here. Right. It happens here. It happens in Chicago and it happens in the suburbs, it happens all over, and, and really nobody is immune from trafficking. Mm-hmm. It can happen to anybody um, given the right vulner- vulnerabilities and given the kind of that moment when those vulnerabilities are most um, available to traffickers. Yeah, it's a, it's a very worthy cause, and, and this display actually really is a, does a wonderful job of bringing some of those issues mm-hmm. to fore. Uh, Karen, you were going to say something. I think we Well, you. Well, I, I was just going to say that I, I think also until people – so many people are surprised by this subject, and yeah. we're right next door to Mexico. Right. And I think until people – know the story of the women of Juarez, I mean, I, I, I don't mind doing this play over and over and over and over again because it, it it is that important and it does bring issues to light that it's not just in Juarez, but it is here in Chicago and we can facilitate these conversations to, to until this thing stops, yeah. I think it's of value to tell these stories that people, most people in our audiences have no idea. They are so shocked. I mean, they really like, it, it's been amazing to see the audiences because they don't move. Normally people in, in plays, they kind of shift a little bit, but they just press themselves into their seats more and more as the play continues. Please come see it. It is funny. <laughs> but, <laughs> and there's music and it is beautiful. But but it is I, – I just think the weight of the truth is um, – it's done very, very well and and, and people don't know. I also think the reality is we have a short attention span as a society. And so we hear about an issue and we're excited to go see a performance Mm -hmm. and then we move on. And so unless we continue to have conversations around violence against women and violence against um, minorities and Mm -hmm. and violence against people, we have to keep having these same conversations if we're actually going to impact change and really motivate change in society. And by the way, I think the musical performance, I forgot the name of the singer. Laura Crote. Laura Crote, yeah. She she does a wonderful job. She does. Uh, and and if you understand some Spanish, you know her mm-hmm. actually the vocals, the you know the lyrics of the songs are very very important, mm-hmm. very uh, pertinent to the subject of the uh, of the thing. So Isaac, what's next for you? Uh, what are you uh, <laughs> going to be doing? Uh, you know, <laughs> just uh, give us a little bit of what may be coming on yeah, stage to Chicago. Totally. So you're going to have now a re- new relationship. You're part of the, officially part of the uh, ensemble of. Oh the, no, no, that's uh, not me. That's Karen. That's Karen. Karen's oh, I forgot. Uh, I'm yeah. getting the press releases <laughs> a little bit confused. So congratulations on being Thank officially part of the <laughs> Steppenwolf now. And uh, what? And Anyways, Isaac, tell us what, what, what you're up to next. Yeah, so um, um, I have a development part of the Denver Center for Performing Arts Colorado New Play Summit. 
uh, happening in February. We'll have a workshop and a two week workshop and reading series of my play Wally World that got and actually will also be a yes. part of. Okay, um, I'm, I'm following him. I'm stalking him. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've worked together so long, and then I have yeah. uh, the off Broadway premiere of the companion piece, The Way She Spoke. Mm-hmm. We'll have its a uh, 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 production in this this coming summer, Excellent. and then currently everything else is under purview. So just wait yeah. and see. Yeah. Keep an eye out. Now, LaRuta runs through uh, January 27th? Yes. yes. And have you been doing talkbacks afterwards? Or people Every day. Uh, and how, what, what, what do people say? No, because I don't really watch them. So you oh. go. <laughs> <laughs> I protect myself. I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm getting my hair off during I've, that time. <laughs> she, she wears extensions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah I've, had, I've had the opportunity to sit through a couple of them and um, what's been inspiring in two aspects are, um, from what I'm told, this, these are some of the largest attended post-show conversations yes. for Steppenwolf Productions, which is incredible. It says people, like Elise was mentioning, are motivated to move beyond the conversation into, into action and change. And um, for a lot of folks who have not heard about the women in Juarez and the circumstances around them, the conversation really gears towards one of disbelief, of shock, of horror and a yearning to do something mm-hmm. for for people of Latin American descent, primarily Mexican, who are coming to see the show in huge waves. They see themselves yeah. on stage in ways that they rarely have um, in their fullness, holistic, mm-hmm. complex, nuanced ways. And that is one of the most rewarding experiences for me in, in, in hearing people see themselves. Uh, Elise, I know people who are, are concerned about human trafficking think feel helpless about it, but there's actually things people can do here that are helpful. There is a 24-hour hotline. There is an infrastructure that helps traffic people. So you take volunteers. You train volunteers. Yeah, so our program takes female-identified folks who are interested in doing direct volunteer work. Um, we have a drop-in space for female-identified youth and young adults who've had to trade sex for survival and have been exploited in that. Where is, uh, can you say where that is? Is that not it's, <laughs> it's in the city. It's, it's downtown. The, it's downtown. Um, you have a downtown drop-in place for... We do. Uh, for and then we people. also offer community-based case management. So for individuals who want someone to kind of come to them, where that makes it easiest to access services, we have that to offer as well. But we also take volunteers. So we have volunteers who help with our hotline. We have volunteers who help at our drop-in. We also have volunteers who help collect clothing and other goods for uh, survivors in our area. And so there are a lot of different ways that people can get involved. Um, and if people want to look for the Stop It program, they can find it on the Salvation Army website? Yeah, we have an easy-to-remember website. It's sastopit.org. sastopit.org. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Elise Dobney, Program Manager for the Salvation Army's Stop It Initiative Against Human Trafficking. And thanks also to Isaac, Isaac Gomez and Karen Rodriguez from uh, the Steppenwolf play La Ruta, which goes through January 27th. Check it out. And Nari Safavi, our global citizen friend, we will see you next week here on Weekend Passport. It's a privilege to be here. Thanks, man. Thank you, everybody. Monday on Worldview, J.B. Pritzker is hogging up the show. He is going to become the next governor of Illinois during this hour on Monday, and I'll be hosting some live analysis after we hear the inauguration address of J.B. Pritzker as governor of Illinois. Check that out on Monday. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.